Welcome to Season 5 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's Festival of Ideas since 1997. We're celebrating 25 years of community connection, and I want to give special thanks to our amazing volunteers who make it all possible, and to thank you for supporting the festival, authors, booksellers, and each other. Today on the podcast, we present a conversation between CKCU's Susan Johnson and Ottawa's Michelle Sinclair. Michelle worked for two decades on policy related to human rights issues and has lived, studied or worked in Australia, Bangladesh, Costa Rica, Ecuador, France, Switzerland, and the United States. Almost Visible is her first novel and reflects on what can happen when a lonely person intervenes in another person's life. A review in the Miramichi Reader says there's an intensity in Michelle Sinclair's writing, depth of insight into each character, each setting, and each moment that draws the reader into the words of her story. Every word, every moment has a place in her writing. This makes for excellent reading. Here's their conversation. I'm curious, Michelle, about what brought you to the world of writing fiction. At what point was that quite generally a thing in your life? I think I have been interested in fiction forever. I mean, I think probably most writers will say this, that they found themselves writing even as a kid. They would write little stories. Um, We have these memory boxes in our house and my kids love to go through them. And I, for whatever reason, we've saved all kinds of things from my childhood. And we found these terrible stories about, you know, the fox and the fat horse or, you know, things like that. And Um, I think, you know, I was writing from the time I could actually physically, literally write. So I think um, it's something I've always enjoyed doing. Uh, I think it's something that I really enjoyed learning about as well, learning the craft of writing and reading other writers um, more, you know, in a more in a more pointed uh, academic way. I also read a lot of authors who say they 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 receive some kind of encouragement early on. and, And I I did as well. I wrote a story in French um, that won a, a little award, and it was really uh, it was about a, a unicorn who got caught in a in her own bubble of chewing gum <laughs> and flew across the city and had all kinds of adventures. and And I think that was really encouraging that that you know won an award and and was recognized like that. And I think um, I've just always been kind of a daydreamer and really love to to be. Um, in my head. So I think that's something that writing allows you to do. Writing fiction allows you to do that. And you've been quite intentional about pursuing like a focused effort to growing your craft. As I understand, like you've been studying and thinking and working in quite a a systematic manner. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, well, I, um, I've been really lucky to be able to take a lot of courses. Uh, I think I, while I was writing and raising kids as well, oh, not writing and working and raising kids, I tried to fit in uh, courses where I could. So um, <laughs> the first one was um, the Humber School of Writers, that when I was able to, I couldn't believe I, I was accepted because I had really a very, very basic uh, draft and idea at that point. But for some reason, I was, I was 
accepted into the course and and I had David Adams Richards as my mentor which was just incredible I couldn't believe it and that early experience I think really really helped me not in refining necessarily the writing because at that point I think it was I was still such a beginner that even um, the mentoring wasn't the writing wasn't at a stage where the mentoring was going to be as useful as it could have been. It was really about getting 10 pages done a week and making sure and knowing that someone's going to read these 10 pages. And so I have to get them done and they have to be at a level that, you know, I'm not totally embarrassed of them. So I think that was, that was really, really helpful. And that made me just produce the material to then say, okay, now I have, you know, 150 pages what am I going to do with these and how am I going to edit them and, and turn them into something worth really worthwhile and I, I mean not to say that David Adams Richards wasn't helpful he definitely was but as I say it was just so early on in my in my sort of um, intentional efforts in, that it it just um, yeah I think I think it still needed a lot of I needed I needed a lot of of support and help <laughs> still in my but not everyone does you know I, I just want to put out that out there that a lot of people can can write without needing courses and so on but I felt that I did I really wanted to um to learn and and practice um there's someone who said I think you know there's kind of common a common saying amongst writers that you need to put in you know 10,000 hours I think before you can really you know I say this with my grain of salt consider yourself a writer I think you know you can consider yourself a writer if you write but I think there is something to be said for putting in practice and 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 just writing every as much as you can well and I think it's inspiring for a lot of us and a lot of readers and a lot of aspiring or hopeful writers to realize okay uh, some writers might be born that way but others grow and hone their craft and reflect through like really intentional process over time mm -hmm. now you mentioned that you started the the humber program with a, a with an idea with a draft and i wonder michelle if you might tell us about the early roots of almost visible Hmm. It's it's hard to think back to that time because it really it started I started thinking about it about 11 years ago. Um, my son is 11 now and so he was just a baby <laughs> at the time and it seems like such a long time ago and I, I began thinking about it 10 years ago but I was really thinking about my life even 10 years before that when I started writing it. So the main character in Almost Visible is kind of in a place where I was 10 years, 20 years ago, if that makes sense. Um, but I think the root of the story, it, it, I mean, I'd like to say it all came from my imagination, but really I think, you know, <laughs> so much comes from our experience. And the idea that I wanted to explore, it wasn't even so much that I had a plot yet, or I had, um, the, I had some of the idea of the characters but it was more of an idea that I wanted to explore and it was more a feeling that I wanted to uh, evoke through characters and so 
<laughs> I, I was studying social work um, in my mid-20s, and I had a, uh, an internship at a psychiatric hospital, and I realized at that time that that was going to be very, very difficult for me, that I was going to have a hard time with boundaries and with maybe, you know, I realized maybe I'm not the right person for this, even as much as I wanted to help people and I wanted to, to be the best social work student I could be. It was, it was very, very challenging for me <clears throat> for, for a number of reasons. And I think I realized at that time that I needed to protect myself a little bit from myself. <laughs> and I started thinking about you know, what if there were someone who who went into a field like this and then couldn't actually develop those boundaries? What if they were so empathetic that they kind of lost themselves in someone else's story? So I think that's where the root of the story began. And, you know, I was also thinking about questions of around, you know, what is empathy and what does it mean? And is it, you know, is it helpful? Is it self-destructive or, or um, or is it even, you know, self-serving at times? And, and I think I wanted to explore some of those questions. And ultimately, you know, I believe that empathy is, is very important and, and the only thing that will, um, that will help us in the end. But I, I wanted to kind of play with that a little bit and show the ways in which we can, we can connect to other people and, and how, and just think about a, a specific situation like that. And I also wanted to think a little bit about um, the extremes that we go to in our in our beliefs and how um, polarized we can become in a sense. And I, I was thinking about, you know, what if there's someone, well, maybe this is a better answer for another question, but is someone kind of stuck in the middle, not knowing how to act? You know, you see people on this side and people on this side and you think, well, I can see how both of them might be correct. And but I don't know. I wanted Tess to be to relate to people who potentially are not on the extremes and who could be in the middle thinking, okay, either I don't want to know what's going on, or I'm going to turn around and, and, and not focus on that, or I want to help, but I don't know how to help. And she can relate to that because she's a person who uh, really wants to help, but isn't sure how best to do that and I think that was that was the germ of that idea um, but I must say just going back a little bit at the beginning I I did you know discussing the idea with with friends and so on there were I, I you know the book almost became almost a thriller it almost became a psychological thriller where she wasn't sure if Mr. Hewitt was some, was in her head actually speaking to her you know there were many many um <laughs> there have been many versions of the story oh do tell like that like what an amazing journey for you yourself to go on yeah well so I, I can't say that any of them really came to light but they were you know considerations so I think at the, as I say at the beginning I don't know if I I think I wanted to write a thriller because I thought that was the only way to keep a, a reader engaged I didn't know that you could do that through just um, character development or having interesting uh, prose, you know, I thought, oh, no, this has to hook the reader and we have to get them interested right away. And for some people, you know, that is that is definitely what they what they want in a book. Um, and I thought, 
I thought, oh, it would be really interesting and creepy if um, if she reads Mr. Hewitt's journal and she gets to know him, and then in the end, he's not actually even real. It's you know she's been imagining him the whole time. Um, but then I thought, well, that's kind of doing a disservice to Mr. Hewitt as a character, and and I really I grew to like him, and I wanted him to be real, and I wanted the story to be taken seriously because it is you know it is a serious story, his what he's lived through, and. Um, and I wanted to to honor that, I, I suppose, as much as you can honor um, a fictional character. <clears throat> I wonder if we can go back to the the topic of boundaries, Michelle, because I know one of the pieces. And um, for our listeners, I'll say I'm not doing spoilers here. I promise, um, because it's on. I'm pretty sure it's on the back of the cover. It is on the back of the cover, um, the inside jacket of um, Tess borrows a journal. Uh, from Mr. Hewitt. And I keep getting stuck in the, like, and I, I love the visual description of the the beauty and the curiosity in the, the journal. And I'm like, whoa, here's this empathetic person. And we know she's social work trained. And she takes something. Um, and like, and it is, the journal is then such a, a crux of like, it takes us in and what a vehicle for the this story um and I kind of wondered okay like we're not all saints and how do we how do we how do we st- like what kinds of actions do we take on the the pro- I'm going circular here <laughs> see if I can um yeah the it reads as an imp- um Tess's decision to take the journal like it you know like it sounds like an impulsive decision humans make those um yeah it's like oh okay Tess um Tess is a character with flaws as well and I I had a little bit of trouble coming to to terms with the oh this person has two sides as well you know and maybe I'm judging her too hard but I'm curious about like where you sat with the test taking things um that's a really good question I I haven't thought that much about that to be honest I know I think in Tess's own mind you know she tries to justify it she says she's doing it in order to learn more about this man because he obviously needs help he needs her uh, or so she thinks um and so she she justifies it in that way in terms of taking the journal well just you know from a from a writer's perspective i did consider um whether or not Tess should have maybe a slight problem with stealing. That was something I considered to, to kind of, you know, just to also make that more believable from, from her. But I, I, in the end, I, I didn't go with that um, aspect of her personality and I decided, yes, she would be a good person who who definitely, who has flaws, who in trying to do good, um, maybe, commits acts that are not that are not um ethical or correct i think it's more you know tess tries so hard to be good and i think it's more interesting maybe in a way that she is um flawed and conflicted it's it's very difficult as a writer because you want your characters to be good 
but you also want them to behave badly. <laughs> and I think going forward in my writing, I think I'm going to have more confidence in letting my characters do what they need to do and, and behave badly, because I think in a sense that what, that's what makes the story more interesting. Um, if everyone's acting properly, then you don't might not have much of a story. So I think, you know, in a way, Tess had to steal it. I don't know um, that she would have found out, you know, Mr. well, she definitely wouldn't have found out Mr. Hewitt's story if she hadn't, or what she thinks is Mr. Hewitt's story if she hadn't stolen the journal. And we as readers benefit from that fact very clearly to, yeah. to dig into that story. So like, I'm mindful too of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, from a craft perspective, you know, I hate to say that it made sense, but it did, you know, I think I, I did wonder, there were so many, it was, this was a very um, difficult novel to structure in a way, because I, I didn't know how to make it clear, you know, at first, this wasn't a journal, this was just the story alongside Tess's, and but then I wondered, well, how will the reader know what they're looking at? And, and to do a first person, you know, I wanted the, the, the journal to be in first person. And so I thought, well, it only makes sense if it's if Tess is also reading the journal and we are the reader is learning alongside Tess. Um, so it was also, in a sense, a bit of a craft decision because it was it was a very, as I say, it was a very difficult novel to structure and to know where to put the information and how to piece it out. Um, it, it went through so many versions and drafts. <laughs> oh, it's always the thing of like refining and refining and shaping and seeing where you want it to go. Michelle, I know that you've, you've lived and worked in a number of different places and that you, um, you've got the social work background, but also a human rights background and when I think about growing up and first learning about human rights topics, so many of them for me personally were centered on Latin America. And I'd be curious about both how you, to what extent uh, your human rights work lens helped you with the book and then your process of research for this particular one. Yeah, I, I would say my, my human rights lens um, helped enormously in the sense that it, it, it uh, it shaped the questions that I wanted to ask, and it shaped the the issues that I wanted to research and 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 look into. I've always been drawn to to Latin America, but I mean, especially now, my husband is from Ecuador, and my my extended family is 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 all in South America. Uh, but it, but my early professional life, I was able to go to uh, Central America for an internship, and there I had the amazing honor of working with the UN Special Rapporteur for the Human Rights of Migrants, um, Gabriela Rodriguez, who actually was a uh, refugee from the Pinochet regime in the 70s. And she had, you know, spent her life living in France and then finally settled in, in Costa Rica and devoted her life to, to human rights issues. She started an NGO there and, and I was able to go there and work with her. And I met with people from all different countries, from um, Nicaragua, from Costa Rica, from Argentina, from Chile, from um, El Salvador, from everywhere. And just, I think I, I, I was really able to appreciate the extent to which 
you know, in Canada, we saw, well, at least from my perspective, I feel as though human rights was more of an academic exercise, discussing it was an academic exercise that we did in the classroom. And it was very much something that, that we, we appreciated, but not at this, not at the same level as some of my colleagues from these Latin American countries that had experienced these, these kinds of um, recent, well, fairly recent, you know, uh, dictatorships. And they, for them, it was really, it was uh, a calling and a matter of, of, of um, in some, you know, in many cases and earlier in their lives, a matter of life or death. And so it, it, it kind of struck me to how, how incredible the work they were doing really was. It wasn't just to, you know, the, it wasn't just a career or a way to, you know, a stepping stone towards another job. It was really something they were absolutely 100% passionate about. And, and getting to meet with them and work with them was, was such a privilege. So I wanted to, I mean, that, that was a very formative experience. And I wanted to um, bring some of the, the issues that I learned about in that work experience into my fiction. Can I say as well, just one of, one of the, so that even though, you know, I had these great experiences working with these people, none of the characters and none of the, the experiences in the novel are uh, based on anything that I learned, except for one scene. There is one scene in the novel where, um, and I don't want to give too much away, but the young, there's a, a young man who's, who's stopped by the police and based on how he's dressed and so on. And his friend helps, helps him out um, it's thanks to his connections that he's able that he's let go and that that scene was actually conveyed to me by a colleague an Argentinian colleague who said this this exact thing happened to him and so and he he gave me permission to write about it and so that was really really interesting and the the research I did you asked about research was it was there was a lot of research and I must say actually the opening scene as well was it, that wasn't entirely from my head. That was also um, based largely on on research that I did about people who were detained, and mostly in Argentina. I must say that the the research was largely done in Argentina, and I originally had hoped to place it there, but then I did change my mind. Yeah, I changed my mind because I didn't want to tell a story that's not mine to tell, and so I thought instead of making it specifically about a certain place, I'll kind of generalize it so that it's it can be applicable to I mean I think many readers will identify with with Argentina but but you know I'm hoping that it could also be any of these kind of um, dictatorships where, where society was so incredibly polarized and people were um, kind of obliged to take uh, a position um, or you know as I said remain on the sidelines kind of hoping that that it'll all just sort itself out but I think there were very few people who were able to to do that um but I did you know I did hear from people that, that many did many just assumed well this doesn't affect me I'm sure the government knows what they're doing or I'm sure you know if they are being detained it's for a reason or or you know I'm just not going to read the news <laughs> because it's so terrible um so you know there were many many people do what they what they have to to survive and I think it's a really interesting study of exactly how humans address oppression and where people will, for lack of better words, embrace it. 
or actively resist it or duck. Um, and we see that in so much history and so much writing. And I think like your conversation and your reflections on what it's like to to be in it and live with it are so beautifully helpful. Thank you. Well, I think it's it's also, you know, it's interesting to think about the the parallels, you know, and I think this is something I wanted Tess to see as well, was that the, the past injustices are not that different from, you know, the what's happening today. And and here she is thinking, oh my gosh, all of this happened in the past and I can't do anything about it. But in a sense, she's also challenging herself to think, well, what am I doing about the injustices going on right now? And, you know, I was writing this in a time where, which, you know, also changed every draft changed a little bit because I was, you know, we're we were living through um, intense polarization in the United States with Donald Trump as president. And then we have, you know, the, the pandemic and then we have the, the trucker convoy in Ottawa even. And, you know, just seeing the ways that people were responding. And I think, gosh, you know, it's one thing to see this political polarization in the 1970s and in in south american countries but we're experiencing it here too and and the way that it's the way that the polarization is expressed is so different too now with social media and the way that's that people convey their opinions um and the role of the media and so on it's it's just it was interesting to think about that and to think about Tess, my main character and where she would fit in all that and how she's struggling to do something and and help and and yet you know in a way, it's she's got to look at, at what's happening today as well and look at her actions. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. We haven't talked about loneliness yet, Michelle. And I'd been back and forth about to what extent we we should and how people how people connect and how people understand themselves. I'm thinking about Tess just moving to Montreal and moving in with a woman that she knew from high school and thinking about, okay, who am I now? Who was I then? How am I connecting with people? And I'm curious, like, what your take is on writing the loneliness and what kinds of things came up for you or that you wanted to evoke? That's really hard, actually. It's hard for me to even sometimes read um, loneliness, but I do, I think it's an important uh, emotion to feel because so many people (laughs) feel lonely. And I think it's, it is, it's an experience that I hope we will, we can all try to help other people not to feel because I think it's, it's, um, I, I don't know. I, I know that I've I've felt lonely at times in my life, you know, moving around, but, you know, at the beginning, you don't have any friends, especially, you know, having small children was a very lonely part of my life, um, especially because I moved while I had small babies. And so it was, it was, uh, yeah, I, I think I was able to write about loneliness in that period because I was, I was maybe feeling it. 
but it didn't take long. We actually moved to, to Pittsburgh when, when my kids were small. And, and I, um, I must say people in Pittsburgh are very friendly and just were so kind. And there were so many uh, parent groups and so on. So I, you know, didn't experience loneliness for long, but, but this was part of it. I thought I need, I need to write. I need something that's mine that takes me away from, you know, the kid, <laughs> the constant caretaking, um, which is, which is tiring. And so I'm getting away from the loneliness issue, but I think, uh, I think they can be, they can be connected always. But I, anyway, I think loneliness as well, you know, thinking of, of the pandemic and what people, people being isolated and, and what they've experienced. I think, I hope that it's, I think we've all realized how much we need one another and how excited we've been to come back together when and, you know, as we can in, in safe ways. And we moved to Pittsburgh for my husband's job. And I, I don't know why rather naively thought I wouldn't have trouble finding a job, but of course I needed a visa (laughs) and uh, I don't know. So I ended up home with the kids. And as I say, I, I, I loved that. I loved that opportunity. I was very lucky to be able to take leave from my job in Canada. And, and, you know, we were fortunate in, in all respects. Um, but it was hard. It was hard having been working full time. And then suddenly I'm in a new place and I'm, I'm with the kids all the time and I don't know anyone. And uh, I decided to, to use that opportunity to study even more um so i i signed up at chatham university i did a um a program in in creative writing and it was just the most wonderful experience because yeah we just spent our days reading and and talking about books and talking about writing and the craft of writing and i met such wonderful people and really at chatham brought in some amazing writers um jasmine ward and and um i'm trying to think who else we saw uh some poets like terence hayes was there and um natalie diaz some you know um really astonishing writers from the united states and it was just it was again it was such a privilege and such an amazing opportunity and i I learned so much um but again not everyone needs to (laughs) to do this kind of program i think it it was it was a lot of fun and it brought me out of my my loneliness um my lonely period but uh but it was it was also a great opportunity to to hone my craft as well well, and it's like the meandering processes, like the meandering parts of life, the meandering parts of writing, the the opportunities that come from being in shifts and in spaces that we we can't necessarily account for. And maybe it gives us time and craft. Maybe it gives us fodder. It's mm-hmm. it, community. Yeah. 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 In such a, a beautiful way. Where are you at with your writing now, Michelle? Almost Visible is is out in the world. Um, and congratulations. Um, Thank you. Um, yeah, well, it's been, I, I, I'm, it's been so exciting. I just can't believe that it's really out. I never, I must say, when I started writing, it was really a side project. And even, even when I was studying, it was, as I say, it was to fulfill other, <laughs> other, other needs. It, I never believed that it would 
be out in the world really that people would be reading it um other than you know my few close friends and family um so it's really exciting to see to see it out in the world and to hear what people think about it i i really um am eager to hear if if people have feedback or ideas um and and to discuss it and you know good or bad i i want to know um how people are responding to it and and i i'm hoping to keep keep going i have a couple of ideas for new novels but i'm i'm they're they're ideas at this point there it's i have the premise and i have some characters but i'm very I'm challenged when it comes to plot, so I need to think about what actually happens in the story. But uh, I do, I do have some ideas, and I need to decide which one I'm going to f- sort of focus on. But for now, I'm just I'm enjoying almost visible being out in the world, seeing how people are responding, doing fun things like this, and then um, uh, you know I keep saying I'll I'll buckle down and get down to the next one um, as soon as I can. Yeah, well, and like we go back to. Do things come when they come? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they come when they come. I mean, they they also come with a lot of um, intentional <laughs> work and you know digging away at it. But uh, I know that'll come after. I think this is the the first draft can be sort of a bit more playful and and you can see where you want to go with it. And then afterwards comes the the editing and the 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 sort of harder the harder work. Mm-hmm it's exciting and it's inspiring. Oh my goodness. Michelle Sinclair, thank you so very much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you so much, Susan, for having me. It's been, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you too. I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks. So thanks again so much. And thanks to the listeners. (laughs) That was CKCU's Susan Johnson in conversation with Michelle Sinclair. Her debut novel, Almost Visible, is available from Perfect Books on Elgin and from fine independent booksellers from coast to coast to coast. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.